Suicide, the dramedy podcast about mental illness and choosing life over death, one cup of coffee at a time. I'm your host, Chris Parker Howard. And today on the show, we have got activist and author Doug Hughes. Uh, And it's very appropriate that Doug is on the show today because as I sit here, it is January 7th of 2022. And January 6th of 2021 was insane. I mean, I I don't care what side of the political aisle you're on. Uh, That was nuts. That was a day of colossal failure on so many levels. And I think that it's very appropriate to juxtapose that day and the actions those people took with the actions of my guest back in 2015. Uh, If you do not remember (laughs) Doug Hughes from 2015, I highly encourage you to just do a quick Google search and you'll find a story that is captivating and fascinating and almost the entire uh, antithesis of what took place January 6, 2021. Uh, I don't think that I've ever been uh, secretive about my own political beliefs on this show. I tend to lean in to uh, following whatever is the most compassionate choice I tend to want to try to uh, foster ideas that help the most people and hurt the least. And uh, I think that there is a subsection of people in a particular party that got excited about an angry man baby and followed him into hell. And one year later, we're still sorting out the mess. And I'm really nervous. I'm really nervous that it's, it's just the beginning. And when somebody with a little more, a little more savvy under their belt, um, they're, they're going to they're gonna get some things done that are not going to be good for a lot of people. Now, what does this have to do with mental health? A lot. Uh, These things have weighed on my mental health quite a bit. And I'm sure that they've weighed on yours. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, everybody is anxious and, and frightened of the future and where this is all going. But I think if we can just take a step back and recognize the humanity in each other, and our fears and and kind of recognize, well, where is that fear coming from? 
And how can I help you uh, alleviate that fear? What do I need from you to alleviate mine? And I get into a, a really great conversation with Doug today. It's it's long and well worth every minute of your time and attention. And if you want to get some more Doug in your life, and I know that you do, you need to get yourself over to DougHughesAuthor.com. There will be links in the show notes below. Uh, and yeah, let's get into this conversation with Doug Hughes. Hi, I am incredibly excited to talk to you today. Uh, You have got one of the most interesting stories uh, of, I mean, I remember this story very well. Uh, This was, you know, in my formative years as a human being when I was just starting to become uh, a kind of aware of a whole lot of things at that time, as a matter of fact. So it, it really spoke to me in a bunch of levels. But uh, for anyone that doesn't know, I think we'll just kind of start fresh and go ahead and tell me, uh, like, right up front, I want to get a sense of uh, how we got where we are now. Uh, so first things first, where did you grow up? <laughs> California, Central California. Uh, town, it was a town then called Santa Cruz, uh, mm-hmm. kind of across from San Jose, but that's on Monterey Bay. Beautiful yeah. place. Yeah. What, what was your What was your childhood like? Um, third of seven kids, and uh, my mom was Catholic with a capital C, so I went to, yeah. to parochial school, and uh, I am not. Uh, I'm not a practicing Catholic. I'm kind of halfway to being a recovering Catholic. Yeah. Um, in that, I draw the best from it that there is, and there's a lot there. Yeah. Uh, and yet I refuse to accept all of the doctrine. Right. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you definitely want to take the things that that speak to you and 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 serve you on a daily basis. You know, the things that are making you a decent human being. Uh, the compassion, the love, all of that stuff is great. Uh, but it, so, so tell me a little bit about. Uh, let's let's jump forward just a little bit. Uh, uh, tell me about. Um, tell me about your family. Well, um, my dad was a teacher. High school teacher, mm-hmm. vocational electronics. Yeah. Um, he loved kids. Uh, he hated the administration. And mm-hmm. uh, he he was very much a role model for me uh, later in life. Um, when I was a high schooler, I hated his guts. Uh, he and I fought incessantly. But after he retired... He, they moved from California to North Carolina, and my mom asked me to follow to help him out with a business that yeah. he had started. 
And so I was in my early 30s uh, when I moved out to North Carolina. And I got along really well with my dad then. We, that's when we really uh, hooked up and got to know each other. So uh, that part of it was great. If, if I hadn't done that, I would have always had a rugged negative view of my dad. Yeah. But uh, I guess he changed a lot as he got older. <laughs> I mean, we all do. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me, tell me a little bit about, uh, because this is, and this is, a uh, your, your story takes a lot of twists and turns, uh, to, to put it lightly. Uh, it's, it's kind of all over the place. Um, it's, it's perfect for me and my audience because there's, you know, there's, there's tragedy and there's comedy and there's, there's, and there's intrigue and it's just a lot. Uh, so it's, it's tough to know where to jump in. Uh, so I, I think let's, let's just, let's just jump in. Uh, first of all, tell me about when you first yourself saw yourself becoming politically aware as a person? Um, I would say because a Catholic background, I was socially aware. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly went more liberal than a lot of my siblings did. Um, but it was, it, it does or can come from your Christian background that you see yourself part of a larger whole. Yeah. And you see responsibility to society at large. Um, so that that was there. But for decades, I went along watching what was happening, but certainly not terribly inclined to get involved with any of it. Um, right. And um, after, I mean, I after high school, I was in the Navy for four years. Um, I've been watching what I'm very much into the country, my country, our country. Yeah. Um, And over a period of decades, I saw more and more misfires, failures, um, just the lack of our government act where I could clearly see that they should. Um, A friend and I at work at the post office, this is when I'm approaching 60, um, started to look at it from a different angle. Um, Instead of looking at each individual failure and focusing on the issue or the topic of that, we started looking at the symptomatic causes of what was going wrong. Okay. So this is very much looking at, at the structure of things instead of the individual occasions of where government failed. Bottom line, we kept coming up with the same thing. Big money in politics was able to sway the decisions of our government always to the decision that would most benefit the special interest group who had applied pressure through money. Yeah. Okay. Now, what the outcome would have been without money, nobody could guarantee. But the outcome when money was applied was guaranteed. Okay. So when 
George Bush was looking at prescription drugs for seniors, Medicare Part D, mm-hmm. um, or Part B, um, he couldn't do it, except that the pharmaceutical industry got in and put hundreds of millions of dollars into lobbying for it. But when that law was written, there was a clause inserted that says the government is forbidden to price shop, competitively price shop, the biggest consumer, buyer of drugs, has to pay at the highest rate. And you say, well, when Congress passed that law, what did we taxpayers get in exchange for this? Yeah. Nothing. There's no benefit for us. What did they get? Okay. We'll get on to that a little bit later in the discussion. Mm-hmm. Although none of the money money at that time went directly in their pockets. Okay. And this this is like not fully just on Bush or Republicans at that time. It was last month they were talking about changing that aspect of the law. Okay. And the committee who had that for consideration, okay, voted to preserve the existing standard, which is you and I get price gouged. Okay, for protecting seniors so that they don't die. Okay, we get price gouged, and it was voted down in committee, and three Democrats joined all of the Republicans in voting that down. Mm-hmm. Why? What benefit is there to citizens, taxpayers, for us yeah. to pay the highest rate and for it to be against the law for the government to try to save money? Money in politics, and there is nothing so bipartisan as green money. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I don't want anybody to think that, that I'm on a partisan thing here. Right. Okay. Go to, go to the Obama years. Okay. Mm-hmm. We're trying to get universal health care. Okay. One of the things that the progressives pushed for very heavily was um, a um, public option. Mm-hmm. Okay. Basically... You could choose to go with your insurance or you could choose to go with Medicare that, that you would pay into. Okay. Yeah. We don't have a public option. Okay. But the insurance industry put their weight behind Obamacare to get it passed because they were guaranteed a monopoly. Yep. You see a pattern here? Oh, okay. yeah. Guess what? The same pattern exists with energy policy, because big energy goes ahead and has unlimited amount of money that they can throw at it, okay? When you talk about uh, criminal justice reform, mm-hmm. private prison industry has got an ax to grind there, okay? And I could go on and on down the list, but anything that Washington, Washington does that has a price tag on it, okay, yeah. is for sale, okay? Congress is for sale. It's a question of how much money you're willing to bring bring to bear on what you're doing. Yeah. Ah! Rosie, I'm going to put you out ah! here. <laughs> I apologize. My dog is she, usually a very... A, a very she agrees. Good. <laughs> She's well, okay. cheering you on. <laughs> um, so here, Mike and I, my friend from work, we're very much into the issue of money and politics. Yeah. And we started reading news articles, looking through that lens. Okay. And it was 
astonishing. He and I were both coming to work with, read this story, here it is, but read this paragraph. It talks yeah. about how money, how Wall Street, how special interests, okay, affected the legislation. And I'm going to toss in one more thing before I go to a more personal aspect. Yeah, yeah. Um, the U.S. Constitution, as I see it, is very much a contract between the government and the people who created that government. It's, it, it's a contract. It's a deal. It is a written deal that spells out what government can do and what their obligations to us are going to be and the yeah. rules under which that government will operate, okay? Our government, consider that to be a marriage contract. Our government is screwing around on us. They're in bed with big money. Mm-hmm. Corporations were never mentioned in that contract, and it's been decades since the American citizen has gotten sloppy seconds from our government. Yeah. Okay. It's, it's not like they are affecting things where they shouldn't or they're affecting them more than they should. They're not supposed to be in the deal at all. Okay. Right. Corporations are represented because the CEO gets to vote. The shareholders get to vote. And the consumers of that corporation get to vote. Okay. So they affect, that's where the pressure for the laws that affect corporations are represented. Okay. Yeah. But unfortunately, there's a lot more consumers who resent being gouged and have voting power. Okay. So when the government is moving to grant a monopoly to somebody, okay, you leave it to the democratic process of whether that, that monopoly should stand. Okay. The people who are getting gouged are going, no, we do not want this company to have a monopoly on something we can't get anywhere else. Okay. So the corporation says, wait, we're going to have a democracy here where we have representation based on the amount of money we can put in. All right? Yeah. But it's supposed to be one person, one vote. That's the way you and I were taught in school. And citizens yes. are really, really unhappy. They're not even aware where things are coming from. But the democracy that we have is not the democracy we were promised. Right. Okay. So let me get off my soapbox. <laughs> well, um, before before we even get into that, I, I I mean, there's there's so much that you said there that makes so much sense, and one of the things that's uh, that's frustrating for a lot of people is it's not about not wanting to pay taxes; it's about what do we get for that money? Like, if we're all putting that money in, what are we getting for our dollar? I mean, we can certainly say, yeah, I mean, we we want to support the troops, but do they need more money than they asked for? Do we need to have the largest military budget in the world four times over? Uh, you know, what do we what do we want to do with that money? Do we want to invest in education? Do we want to invest in our own personal health care? Do we want to change the prison system to you know rehabilitate people so that they can be human beings? What You're do we want to do family. with our money? What kind of people do we want to be? And we should be able to have a conversation about it with people that we disagree with and not have it be a closed door and not have those conversations and decisions taken away from us uh, with things like citizens United. And I mean, there's, there's a lot going on there. Uh, (laughs) I mean, 
Oh, corporations are people. That's that's a tough yeah. one for me to swallow. <laughs> that's a tough one for most Republicans to, to swallow. And I'm not asking yeah. you what your political affiliation is. That's not the point. But right, right. voters across the board are... are the, the problem is with the polarization, uh, the Democrats are convinced it's the Koch brothers or Koch brother now. Okay. Right. And yeah. the Republicans are absolutely convinced it's George Soros. Okay. Yes. And it's like, wait, step away just a minute and look at this. The problem isn't where the money is coming from. It's the size of the money. It's the fact that money in great quantities being used to influence what people you and I hired to represent us. Okay. So it's not, yeah. not let's attack George Soros. Let's go ahead and get together and say, we're just not going to let big money in the political arena before, during, or after. Yeah. I, I wrote a memoir about my adventures. Okay. And I wouldn't have written it and I didn't write it to make a quick buck, which I've been really successful at not doing. Um, <laughs> I wrote the book as an envelope for the ideas of how we get big money out of politics. It can be done. Yeah. But when Mike and I had gotten to this point, and we had gotten to the point where we're proving it to each other on a, every other day at work, we're showing each other, hey, this happened. Boom, here it is. They almost admit that it's big money in politics. But the way the press addresses it, they don't quite call it out for what it is. Yeah. But they, they will tell you it's there, but they don't call it out. Now, I'm in my second marriage. I had three kids with my first marriage, two, two boys and a daughter. Um, when we came up with the idea and Mike and I were trying to run with it, um, we were going to set up a website and one of my sons is uh, a techie in Orlando. I said, let me, let me talk to him about how I do this. He, he would know. So I met with John, 24 years old, smart as a whip, popular, just discovered partying, really into it with a girlfriend. And we met for hours and he said, dad, you can do this, you know? And he gave me instructions on, on where to go. And uh, I remember the last words he said to me, he leaned, he, I dropped him off at his place and he, he leaned over and he says, dad, I believe in you. Okay. Um, He committed suicide a couple of months later by head-on collision, killing the driver of the other car. He got in an argument with his girlfriend. And as it turned out, he wasn't depressed. He simply wanted to hurt her as badly as he could, as permanently as he could. Um, I went into a tailspin, okay? I, yeah, part of the Catholic negative part of it. Yeah. Um, somebody has to do penance for this sin. My son was not around to confess it or to 
make amends for it or or anything. And in some dark part of my Catholic upbringing, I took the blame myself, completely unjustified from any rational point of view. And to give, to be fair to the Catholic Church, if I had told the Catholic priest what I was talking about, he would have been the first one to counsel me out of the direction that I was in. But I was going to commit suicide. It really wasn't a question of if, it was a question of when. Um, I, once you get into a downward spiral, okay, of somebody's got to pay and the person who did it can't, and he is your son, so it's you, it's yours. Um, once you really, really buy into that, okay, it, it's a dark pit. Yeah. Um, and it was out of that, and when that was going on, that it occurred to me that if I was going to commit suicide anyway, what if I did something constructive and dramatic? And I said, you know, what John did, the sheer determination of putting your foot to the floor with the headlights out in your car so that you can go with the other car who can't see you yet at 80 miles an hour, you better be gritting your teeth with the determination. And I went, if it wasn't an act that was destructive in nature, but it had that level of intensity. Could it be constructive? Could I direct the attention of the nation to big money in politics for a few days, for a brief period of time? Now, I didn't know how to fly at that time. Um, and I didn't realize how difficult the issue of messaging would be because I knew that I could die. And if I did, I still wanted to have my message survive me. Yeah. My friend Mike unwittingly came up with the idea of letters to Congress, which he wanted to send by certified mail. Yeah. And I said, Mike, in order for us to do that, it would cost, and I did a rough estimate, about $4,000 to send that 500 letters by certified mail. <clears throat> And Mike, Mike said, well, what, what the hell is your idea? And I said, well, Congress already knows they're corrupt. Those letters need to go to about 300 million citizens. That's where they're. And he says, yeah, you're going to do that certified? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I had been considering the flight, and Mike suggested the letters, and I realized that, that the letters, the letter, to Congress, the letters would be physical. But even if the gyrocopter was converted into shrapnel and red confetti, if the letter was in on my computer, if it was known, then even if I died, that message would survive me. And yeah. as a rather morbid fact, that it would get more attention if I was killed than if I survived. Yeah. Okay. Um, so the letters to Congress and how I could make sure that the message survived me even if I failed, okay, was was part of this. And it took 18 months after I started to learn how to fly until I made the, the trip to D.C. But uh, that 
slowed me down. It actually gave me time to recover emotionally. I was sane and healthy when I made the flight. Okay. I was no longer suicidal. I don't think that I would have committed suicide if I had been prevented from making the flight. Yeah. But for a year and a half, I worked up to making that statement. Okay. And doing it in a way that would draw the attention to the problem that underlies so many other problems. That is big money in politics is why we can't do anything about climate change. Mm -hmm. Big money in politics is why we don't do anything about world peace. Okay. So for a year and a half, while I was learning to fly and developing the logistics for the flight, I was like an Olympic in training, an athlete, okay, getting physically psyched, getting my skills up, getting mentally there, and doing it in the Olympics. That's just the icing on the cake, okay? You did it with the year, but you have to do the Olympics to prove yourself, okay? You You may not get the gold. Okay, right. but you got to go and compete. You got to go out and do it. Okay, or the preparations were for you you alone. So I was emotionally healthy, but I had to make the flight. And because I was healthy, I was ready for the firestorm that happened afterwards, um, which is media firestorm, uh, the opportunity to do everything from Good Morning America to Hannity's show. Okay, mm-hmm. um, I had. A platform and I used it not to talk about myself, but to try to talk about big money in politics. And I was partially successful, but we haven't got it there yet. And part of the problem was, unlike a show like this, uh, I was typically a three minute guest. Yeah. And the host did not want to talk about big money in politics. Okay. Yeah. Because news has become entertainment. Mm-hmm. And the entertainment is big business. Yes. Like 95% of the media outlets are owned by a total of six corporations. Mm-hmm. Right? The source of money for all of those corporations is advertising. And the money for that advertising comes directly or indirectly, almost all of it, through Wall Street. Yeah. Okay. So if you're ABC and you decide you're going to lay bare the truth about how corruption works in Washington, D.C., your ratings could peak and your advertisers will disappear. Because if you're telling the truth about how they're gaming the democratic system to feather the nests of corporations, and you're telling the truth about how corporations are selling us out every frigging day, okay, to make themselves multimillionaires, Okay. So no, it's not, it's not, it is whispered. After I made my flight, the media covered what I did, but they did. There was nobody except for the Tampa Bay Times who printed my letter. Okay. And excuse me, um, America Now. Yeah. Uh, Democracy Now, Amy Goodman. Okay. Mm, right, right. Those right. are the only two outlets who put up my letter. All right. Everybody else said three words, campaign finance reform. But what if this had been terrorism? 
Right. They move past. They move past the issue of money in politics so that their their britches were on fire. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And 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 so, I will reach more people about money in politics talking to you. Okay. Than I did when I had an audience of three million with George Stephanopoulos. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. That's not an exaggeration. It's not rhetorical. Talk to me a little bit question, about the I asked that the question flight. in the book because George happens to be a, a political veteran. Yeah. Okay? So he knew the questions to ask. It's not like he was unaware of what was going on. Right. Um, but maybe he is so much a part of the system that he wouldn't go there if I threatened to cut off his leg. Okay? Yeah. Or it may be that he was willing to go there and his producer said, you're a talking head. These are the questions you'll ask. And then, or it's possible that they just decided, I'm only a mailman, I'm an idiot, I can't possibly know anything about the subject, okay? So we'll just put them on and we'll ask them some softball questions and we'll say, thanks a lot for coming in. And it was great having you on our show. Okay? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why George and almost nobody else went into any depth on it. Okay. But the thing is, most people who were in the news business believes that they have a free hand to cover any story that they want, okay? It's only up at the highest levels that this is a forbidden subject. Yeah. All right? So if I took this, what I'm talking to you about, if I took it nationwide, which I'm planning on doing, to the lower 48 states that I can reach by gyrocopter. I'm going to do a four-month tour of the United States to every state capital of the lower 48, okay? When I get there, and before I get there, I'm going to invite the local media out to talk to me, talk to me about my book, talk to me about money and politics. These people are as sharp as you are, okay? They're, they are aware of what is going on and they don't yeah. know they're not allowed to cover it right okay so they will and so it'll happen in the, the local newspapers not small papers by any means okay but right papers with a local reach okay that's how and things get done it's, i mean that's the lifeblood of america is local newspapers the, the thing is is it's too small of a thing to hit the corporate level Okay, yeah. so Disney and Time Warner and who they're not going to call the editor of a local paper and say don't cover Doug Hughes. Okay, right. It's 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 not on their radar. Okay, right. it won't be on their radar for months. Okay, as I make the, it'll be a four month tour. Okay, but I'm going to start reaching hundreds of outlets. Okay, with a message. Okay. And I'm going to reach tens or hundreds of thousands of people in this tour, okay? And if it works, this thing will start to spread. The people will start talking to other people, okay, about money and politics. And maybe about my book, because I lay out in the book one, not the only, solution to big money and politics that is in our power to do something with. It's within our reach. 
with the people who are currently aware of what's going on. I don't need an army of 100 million people to join me on this, okay? I need 3 million people to realize what is go who already realize what is going on. I need about 3 million people to do the same thing, do it in a coordinated way. Yeah. Okay. That's actually how few people it would take to erect a wall of separation between big money and our government. Big money can continue just the way they are. They can make money hand over fist. Okay. Yeah. They just won't be able to buy our government with it. Okay. And that makes all the difference. Yeah. And Chris, I apologize because I feel like I'm taking it away from you on your show. Oh, are you kidding me? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm not. You've got me wrapped at attention. Uh, <laughs> I I love everything that you're saying here. I mean, I'm I'm ready to join you. <laughs> I, well, okay. Um, yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit because I mean, I feel like we 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 glossed over it for a moment, and and I do want to hear about it. Tell me about uh, the morning of the flight. There you are. You're getting ready. You're, you're going to go, where is, where is your head at? What are you thinking at that time? Um, really easy, actually. I was scared to death <laughs> that the police would arrest me before I took off. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's where my head was. Okay. After a year and a half of preparation, and I am there, I didn't know if I was under surveillance by the U.S. Secret Service, who had already interviewed me twice and yeah. knew about the plan in every detail. Okay. But I had convinced them that I wasn't going to do it, and they went away. But I didn't know if they had really gone away or if they were watching my emails and watching my phone calls and, and, you know, I don't underestimate the ability of the federal government if they put somebody under an automatic, not a, not a person watch, but that they just put it under the computers to watch what somebody is doing. Okay. So I was like, are these guys just giving me enough rope to completely hang myself so they're certain of getting a conviction? Are yeah. they going to stop me at the last second? Because here I am, I'm in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. I'm going to make the flight today, okay? And I think I've hidden it from them, but I could be just fooling myself. It could be yeah. five minutes before I take off, boom, all of a sudden they drop in on me, and then nobody sees the letters. Yeah. Nobody would ever know. I would, yes, I'd be publicly tried, but it wouldn't have made anybody's radar, okay? Right. I had to get off the ground in order for, for my letter to be significant. I didn't have to land for it to be significant, but I had to take off, okay? And so I was tied up in knots. And I will tell you, I was keyed up more than I have ever been in my whole life until I took off. And then I had no anxiety at all. I was still aware I could die on the way. Yeah. All right. But like I said, with the Olympics, I'm there. Yeah, you've been I'm training. I'm there at the big show. I worked my ass off to get here. Nobody can guarantee me the prize. 
but I'm here. And I have won by making it. Okay? One man against the system. I took off. My letter will be noticed. Okay? I was justified at the time I took off. Um, the first chapter of the book is titled The Flight. I cover from the moment my wheels leave the ground in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, until the rotors stopped an hour and 18 minutes later in the shadow of the U.S. Capitol Dome. Okay, that's one chapter. Okay, and, and that's, that's it. People think that's the book. Okay. Right. But the book is what happened before. Like, when I was arrested, and it, it really bugged me because everybody was supposed to know I was coming. I sent off emails to 80 different news outlets at the time I took off by delay mail. Okay. Yeah. There was a reporter and a uh, videographer from the Tampa Bay Times in Washington, D.C. I had interviewed with them. They had the complete story and they had video, which is why there was video of me flying and interviews of me the day that I landed. Okay. Yeah. Because the Tampa Bay Times had that story. Okay. They posted on their website the minute my wheels left the ground. Okay. The stories that I was coming. Okay. And when I get to Washington, D.C., and I'm flying the two-mile Capitol Mall, okay, over the Lincoln Memorial, and then two miles up, past the Washington Monument, White House on the other side. I didn't even look because I've heard there's snipers on the roof. Yeah. So I didn't even look that way. I'm going <laughs> yeah. up there, guys. <laughs> Just wave as you pass. No, I didn't. I, like I said, I didn't even look. No, 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 guys, don't worry about it. I'm like, <laughs> past the Washington Monument, and I on up, and I landed on, on the Capitol, but there were no police out. They hadn't intercepted me on the way, okay, yeah. which was nice. They hadn't shot me down along the way. I'm right. there. Oh, my God, they're going to let me land, okay, yeah. or I'm going to land. Right. And I'm flying up, and there's like, there's a Constitution Avenue on one side, and, and uh, I forget what on the other, but it's like there's no cops out. They don't know I'm coming. Yeah. The cops who are first on the scene are not going to know that I'm nonviolent. It was right. on, it's in the website that I wrote, okay, for this, okay? Everything was there. And I'm seeing no cops, and I'm going, they don't know, okay? So I landed, and no, the, the cops didn't rough me up. They were scared shitless, checking me yep. for bombs, you know? <laughs> um, and... And it was funny. When they first come up, they said, get out. Okay. And I said, I said, okay, I've got two phones in my pocket, which were wired. I had planned on doing audio with my friend in Washington, D.C., with the mm -hmm. Tampa Bay Times, but it failed. So I had two phones through an audio system that didn't work, but they're wired. So they said, get out. I said, I got to take this out of my pocket. Well, there's wires going in my pocket. I was going to tell them before I reached in there, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cops do not like the idea of bombs. That's not, not amusing to them, okay? Yeah. 
So they said, take it out. So I go ahead and I put it down, okay? And, uh, and they said, uh, go ahead and get out. I said, all right, well, I got to kick my leg over the stick. And they said, all right. But at this point, they realized I'm not going to do anything unexpected. <laughs> so the tension level came down. And, and once I got out, uh, I was going to tether the, the blade so that they can't spin in the wind. You can get a hell of a concussion just from a blade that's spinning very slowly on the breeze, you know, yeah. because it comes around from your backside and you don't see it coming. So I'm, I'm, I got the tether in my pocket, which I, and they go and put it down. I said, well, no, you can't, you don't understand. They said, put it down. Okay. <laughs> 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 you guys figure it out. Um, yeah. But they asked me whether or not, after I got to the station, um, they asked me whether or not I was willing to be interviewed without an attorney. And I said, yes, because I needed for the DC cops to stand down. I had made an aerial incursion into Washington, DC. I had intended to strike a nerve, but I intended them to know that I was not a threat. They yeah. didn't know that. So I was willing to talk to them, even though any lawyer would tell you that's not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. And the two hour interview was at times the funniest thing I ever and went through because I, uh, at one point I said, we well, nobody's asked me how come I took off from Gettysburg, and I said, no, you got to ask me. <laughs> and that was the really I'm so confused. Yeah, by oh, all they, of it. I, they, <laughs> I mean, they were gathering all of the evidence that a prosecutor yeah. would need to hang me. But yeah, we were we were cool by the, by the end of it. Okay. Yeah. Um, the guy across the table from me played wound up playing the street man, and I'm sorry, it sounded like you're probably not old enough to know. He sounded like Ed McMahon doing a bit with Johnny Carson. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Why did you take off from Gettysburg? <laughs> <laughs> I'll play along. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and. And there were there were other just really hysterical moments like that. I, I, everybody was serious, but yeah. I explained to them up front. I said the reason I'm talking to you is because this is one main nonviolent demonstration, and no, there isn't anybody behind me, and there isn't any threat. Okay, here's my website, and and I said you you can find out I'm nonviolent from the U.S. Secret Service. And they said, how would the Secret Service know that you're nonviolent? I said, because they interviewed me. I said, someplace they get it. They said, well, you talked to the Secret Service about this? I said, well, if they talked to me about this, yes. And I gave them the name and the phone number of the Secret Service agent. Okay. And uh, later on, I said, hey, you guys, I really expected you know that I was coming. And they said, how would we know? I said, well, my website, okay? And they said, well, you have a website, you know? And I said, yeah, and I go, go ahead and I give them that, you know? And the guy across the, the table from me was supposed to be writing everything down, right? He didn't write anything down. And uh, I said, shouldn't you write that down? <laughs> TheDemocracyClub.org. <laughs> and it's... That's when I realized, it, that's when they realized that I realized it was all being recorded. Yeah. Okay. Because he didn't have to write it down. It was, 
it was on audio, and then later yeah. on I found out it was on video as well. I hope that video never hits the later day. Oof. God, I look like hell. <laughs> um, I hadn't slept in two days, and I frozen solid and you know, looked like a hobo. But um, by the by the time I told them that they should have known because it was uh, on the media. And they said, what do you mean? You talked to the newspaper? I said, yeah, I, I was interviewed about this and for this months ago. Okay. Um, and so their jaws were so, they, they couldn't believe it. Um, yeah. The day after that, I was going to come up for my arraignment, come up before a judge. And uh, I was transferred from the D.C. police to the federal police because it went into federal court. Um, I'm leaving the building that is the lockup, wherever it was. They never told me the address. But I'm leaving lockup, and they're preparing me for transport, which meant leg manacles and a waist, a, a waist belt so that they can yep. handcuff me to, okay? And I'm 61 years old, okay? And I was like... You know, I was going to tell him, you don't need to do this. And I went, no, this is procedure. If yep. he agrees with me that you don't need to do this, I'll, he could get into trouble if he agreed, if I talked him into it, okay, which isn't going to happen. I went, no, I don't need to get anybody in trouble. This is procedure. They got to do it. So the guy's putting on my leg manacles, and he nudges my calf of my leg. And he said, they're waiting. And we're, I was in a garage area that led out to the car where the car was waiting. And I look across on the other side, there's an office, it's Washington, D.C. So it's an air-conditioned office alongside a non-air-conditioned garage. Okay, so they're behind plexiglass windows and there's desks and there's probably four to six cops that were there. Okay, and they're all standing and waving at me. <laughs> I, I don't ask you to believe that, okay? But it's true. Yeah. The the DC cops, I hadn't hurt anybody. I hadn't done any harm. And from mm -hmm. what they all evidently knew from the interview, I had done it in order to try and address a serious problem in our country that they know is a serious problem. Yeah. So they were actually waving goodbye. And the cop who was locking locking my manacles on was telling me, Doug. Look up, they're saying, they're saying goodbye. So I did the only thing I could. I bowed at the waist because I couldn't wave back. Yeah. <laughs> you want to be um, polite. <laughs> well, and recognize, recognize the, the greeting. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not saying this is official policy of, of any police department. Right. Okay. Of course. Um, two months later on, I was flying up to D.C. for a hearing. First time I had traveled by air. And I had an ankle monitor, which set off the alarm at the airport. And I said, okay, well, I've got a letter that I can travel in my bag right over there. So you don't go over the, don't go near that bag. Sit, sit down right there. <laughs> I said, I said, well, I'm going to sit down right there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I hadn't sat down. They call for a supervisor. Supervisor comes around, takes one look at me and goes, let him go. <laughs> and turned around, right didn't he didn't ask my name he knew who i was okay <laughs> yeah 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 so you know that that was the 
the reaction of cops. Um, when I first met my attorney that, that same day, that first day for the hearing, um, short, skinny, black guy, breathless. Okay, I'm your attorney of record. Uh, I only got a few minutes. You're going to be going into the court, which isn't far from here. He said, when you come in, I'm going to do all the talking. Here's the deal. They're going to allow you to go back home on your own recognizance, no bail. I don't know how you did that. You, know, you did that by talking to them without an attorney president, but don't ever do that again. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, he, and he says, and when you get to Florida, they're going to, they're going to fit you with an ankle bracelet down there. You have, they'll, they'll tell you when and where you have to check in at the federal building in Tampa. And he said, uh, you're going to have to give up your passport. He said, do you have a passport? I said, yeah, I do. And it went, light goes on in my head. This opportunity will never come along again in this lifetime. I said, why do I have to give up my passport? He said, because you're a flight risk. I said, how can I be a flight risk? They took my gyrocopter. <laughs> and he, he didn't know if I was kidding him or not. Okay, <laughs> He was like, what on earth is going on? And I grinned at him so that he would yeah. know I was pulling his leg. And, and that's how our, Tony is absolutely the greatest guy. And I found out later on, he's got a great sense of humor, but yeah. he doesn't have it in the courtroom, in, in the right. federal building. Okay. He's got no sense of humor in the building at all. Okay. Mm -hmm. But um, we, we did, we did well. Um, he, we went through the process and that afternoon he said, Doug, you better come with me. And they had my belt, my shoelaces, my wallet. Okay. I didn't have pocket change. So he said, you better come with me. That seemed like a real good idea. But I was released and I was going to be allowed to go back down to Florida. Um, we go outside the building and the press is waiting. And when I say the press is waiting, I don't mean there were two or three guys. Okay. I, I hadn't really... Wait, it's 24 hours after I flew, but I had no idea what had happened. I didn't have any TV in my cell. The cops weren't telling me anything, okay? I I had no cellmate. They locked me up basically in solitary, okay? I was in solitary all the time. I was in the federal building, so I didn't know what the heck was going on. I come out into a packed courtroom for the hearing and went, wow, I guess I must be like one of... A bunch of guys are going to be checking through with the judge because I couldn't imagine that there was a packed courtroom there for me. Okay. And then I realized across on the jury box is a sketch artist. And that may be normal, but the sketch artist was doing me. Okay. And I'm going, son of a gun, what the heck is going on? So we go, Tony says, you need to come with me. And so I come with him. And we walked about six blocks to his office and there was two or three cameras on me all the time and reporters with the guy with the camera. So we're talking three pairs of guys and the guy with the camera walking backwards. Okay. I, I stopped one of them from a nasty fall one time. I went <laughs> motioning him, hey, look around behind you. you know? But Tony's are digging me in the ribs going, don't sing anything. Don't sing anything. Don't answer any questions. So I just smiled and went along with that. 
And we get up into his office and he closes the door. He sits down behind his desk, public defender. He picks up a newspaper that's on his desk, flips it around my direction, and slides it across his desk. It's the Washington Post for the day after I flew. And there was a picture of my gyrocopter just before it landed with the Capitol Dome in the background behind where the gyrocopter is. And that was the Washington Post from the banner to the fold, okay, on April the 16, 2015. And mm -hmm. that was when I realized, okay, I got noticed. Yeah, I and should say. <laughs> Tony says, do you want to talk to your wife? And I had tried to call my wife um, after the interview with the police, and my wife wouldn't answer, probably because she didn't recognize the phone number, because it wasn't on my phone that I was calling, and probably because right. she was getting, I found out later, she was getting called from everybody and their uncles, so she wasn't taking any calls that she didn't recognize. In fact, she had to leave the house for two days to hide from reporters. Um, so Tony says, almost right off the bat, he says, do you want to talk to your wife? I said, yeah. So he's got it on a notepad. He dials her number, goes ahead and gets her on the phone. My wife is like, are you okay? Yeah. Did the police do anything? No. I said, the cops didn't, cops didn't mistreat me at all. I'm fine. I'll be, I'm working on getting my way home. It'll be a day or two, but I've, I'm released. And she says, is the legal over? I said, no, the legal's just starting. Yeah. <laughs> But I'm coming home. She says, do you want to talk to Kathy? This is our daughter, who's 11. And she got on the phone and I made it, the, it was the title of one of the chapters in the book. Papa, what have you done? <laughs> With all of the disbelief that an 11 year old who has been taught to respect authority could put into her mm -hmm. voice, okay? Yeah, so, yeah. What is going on? Um, and she's great because kids have an innate sense of justice. And yeah. I talked to her for a short time and she says, well, it's like Rosa Parks. Yeah. Okay. She said, hmm, wait, she didn't know the phrase civil disobedience yet, but she understood. Right. Okay. You did something right that was illegal, but you did it for the right reason. Okay. I'm cool with you, dad. Right. Yeah. Um, and so the book is full of stuff like it, it, it was funny. Okay. Um, so much of it was hilarious from there on in, but the department of justice has no sense of humor. Uh, right. they went after I'll me. bet those charges aren't very funny. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I wish, I, I wish I had gotten an offer like the uh, insurrectionists, uh, from January 6th we're getting. Okay. Yeah. Um, Except for the, and yes, the Department of Justice is treating the guys that they get pictures of who were violent seriously, okay? But I, I didn't commit any trespassing. I didn't do any property damage. And they weren't talking about recommended two-week sentences. They yeah. hit me with four misdemeanors and two felonies, okay? A total of nine years in jail if I was convi yeah. convicted on all charges, all right? And Tony said, don't worry about it. Um, when the publicity dies down, this isn't going to go to trial and they're going to deal with it reasonably. They never settled down okay, yeah. in what they were going for. The only reason, in my opinion, that we came to a plea bargain agreement 
was because I was so eager to go to trial. And the same people who wanted to put me away for years did not want me to be able to use the pulpit of a public trial to talk about big money in politics. So they were caught between a rock and a hard place. They really wanted to fry my ass, okay? And they couldn't fry my ass unless um, I had a trial. Uh, So I went went up with a sentence of four months, okay? Um, the, The prosecutor agreed to not ask for more in 10 months and and the judge was free to give me three years okay but the judge almost never goes over what the prosecutor recommends uh the defense was free to argue for no time there's probation on it and so we were operating in this zero to ten month window that i agreed to because as it turned out and i don't know if you're familiar with um um, sentencing guidelines in federal law are pretty rigid. And yeah. everything that has to do with sentencing guidelines is in my favor, which meant that if I was convicted, the judge couldn't even consider nine years because there would have been no property damage, no injury, no intent. Okay. All of the factors which could have driven it up to a maximum of nine years, those were all in my favor. My. Yeah lawyer estimated because of sentencing guidelines the judge couldn't give me over 18 months okay and he said that's not that's not likely uh and he said that's why the prosecutor he said the, the best the prosecutor can get is 18 months the prosecutor's not to waste his time with the trial he's going to bargain this down well they wound up with the agency who would do the decision on the factors that go into sentencing guidelines make a non-binding decision in advance. And she decided that there were no sentencing guidelines for me. What I did wasn't similar enough to anything in the entire history and body of federal case law going back until the beginning of sentencing guidelines, okay, to apply. Therefore, I was liable for the full nine years if it went to trial. And my lawyers went, Doug, you're not going to trial. And I said, no, I, I, I'm fine with, I, I said, all we need is one juror to dig in their heels. Okay. I said, I'm willing to take, he said, no, you're not going to take that chance. The judge that I had, had had previously been the head of the FISA courts. Okay. The FISA courts, when she was in charge, having been appointed by Bush, was handing out permission for wiretap and surveillance of people for almost no reason. Uh, so she's, based on what she did as a head of FISA, she was very sympathetic to protecting national interests and national security. And I had violated Washington, D.C. airspace. Okay. So she never did anything to make me think she would have been unfair. But my lawyer is, this is the last judge that we want to have with a free reign of up to nine years if you were convicted of all charges, okay? She may just take this very personally, okay? So we're gonna plea bargain it. Uh, and I told them, I said, go ahead and negotiate or something. And I didn't like the best deal that they got 
Okay, but I had brought in a second lawyer. Both of them were excellent. Both of them were working for me and not themselves. Okay. In other words, these guys weren't trying to advance themselves by associating themselves with the high profile, high profile case. Okay. These guys were in it for me. And both of them said, Doug, you don't go to trial. Not without sentencing guidelines for the risk that you're at. And leading up to something, and I apologize. Oh, a month don't apologize. Before, a month before my sentencing, the prosecutor came up with the, the accusation that I had almost hit a plane departing from Washington Reagan National Airport and would have killed 120 people on board. Okay. He described a near mid air collision without calling it that. Right. right. And the first that we heard of this was right before my sentencing. Okay. After I had pleaded guilty. Okay. And he wasn't in a position where he had to prove his accusations because it wasn't going to trial. We had to disprove it. He didn't have to prove it. We had to disprove it because if we didn't, the judge was free to give me three years. He wouldn't ask for more than 10 months. But if the judge was convinced I almost killed 100 people, she was free to give me three years. Yeah. And that was his plan. Well, as it turned out, because I had two good lawyers, and they scrambled. They put aside other things because they thought the case was over. They, we, had a, we had a deal. This All this had to do is we had to go to the judge. We'd give our argument. The prosecutor would give his arguments. It would come down between 0 and 10. And the son of a bitch throws this, this boomerang at the last second. Okay? Yeah. Both of them dropped everything. And in the next three weeks, we showed that the airplane was in Virginia, on the overland on the Virginia side of the Potomac River, south. I was in the no-fly zone overland. We were able to prove this. Okay, at our closest point, we were eight tenths of a mile apart. Not exactly a, a near mid-air collision, although right. that's still closer than what the FAA says we should have been in. Excuse me, lateral distance, distance apart. Yeah. Okay. But we also showed there was 1,500 feet difference in altitude. The FAA re- recommends only 500 or less feet of difference in altitude. So we had three times the FAA, and the prosecutor somehow left that clause of the rule out when he sent that to the judge. Okay. So first he described a near mid air collision, which he knew it wasn't, okay? Yeah. Then he said it was a violation because we were eight-tenths of a mile apart and we should have been more than a mile apart, okay? And then it turns out that we prove that there was no problem because of the altitude. So there was no violation even of an FAA rule, okay? But this liar tried to get three years after he signed a deal for 10 months. That's why I feel there was there was a lot of political pressure to put me away, I think. Yeah. Because it, he wasn't going to make any more money. He wasn't going to get an annual bonus, okay, yeah. for putting me away. He had struck a deal, and my guess is with anybody else, he would have kept that deal. But he struck the deal because it was the best he could strike to keep it from going to trial 
And then he turned around and tried to get the sentence he wanted to get if it had gone to trial. Um, yeah, I, I, do, I do include that in the book. I don't include it subjectively. I quote <laughs> the written submissions by the prosecutor, which are a matter of public record, and my lawyer's rebuttal, okay? So yes, I call the guy a lion sack of shit, but I never use those words. I use his. Yeah. Um, and in six years, nothing has substantially changed on the issue of big money in politics. And the Democrats are fiercely opposed to what the Republicans would do with an authoritarian government. But if the Republicans were all to go away tomorrow, the Democrats would return to money in politics and serving Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Okay? I, and, and, yeah, there are exceptions on both sides of the aisle. Sure. Absolutely. Okay? There are good legislators, Democrats and Republicans. Right? That, that's not what I'm saying. But yeah, there no has group always a been a clear and overwhelming majority in Congress wants to keep the gravy train on the rails yep okay and it's not a party issue right um do we have a few minutes to talk oh yeah about how because people would say yep it's corrupt yeah i know it's corrupt yeah i agree it's bipartisan man that's low-hanging fruit everybody knows that yeah okay the question I've gotten from people is, is there any way that it can be fixed or is it so much part of the system that we're stuck with it forever? Um, do you recall the name Eric Cantor? Yeah. Eric Cantor would have been the speaker, Republican Speaker of the House, okay? Um, he was a Republican from Virginia and he mm -hmm. was earmarked to replace uh, Boehner, because yeah. Boehner had already decided he was going to leave, although it wasn't publicly announced. And he, the fix was already in for Eric Cantor to succeed him, Eric Cantor being the number two Republican in the House of Representatives. It didn't yeah. happen, okay, because right. Eric Cantor lost his election in a safe red district in Virginia after he had won, I think, seven times in a row in that district, okay? He didn't lose to the Democrat, okay? The Tea Party organized, and they beat him in the primary election with a Republican who had never run for office before, a university professor uh, by the name of Dave Bratt. And Eric Cantor spent 10 times as much money as... Dave Brett did, okay? And he still lost the election because the Republicans organized, okay? And I, I do a certain amount of lead up on this into the book, but the bottom line is every member of Congress and the U.S. House of Representatives is vulnerable, but not in the general vulnerable in the primary, okay? Yeah. 85% of the U.S. House districts, federal House districts, have a majority. They are either red or they are blue. 
Okay. In some cases, it's artificial gerrymandering, mm -hmm. but in most cases, it's not. Okay. A Republican in Northern California is an endangered species. Okay. A Democrat in Kansas, okay, will have to spend a lot of money to do any more than getting put on the ballot. Okay. He's not going anywhere. Okay. Yeah. So there is there is this majority that exists, and it baffles me. And it, that natural majority is why over ninety percent of incumbents who run for re-election get re-elected. Okay. It's an automatic that you'll get re-elected, and yet these people spend a third to two thirds of their work week every week that they're in Congress raising money for their next election. Okay? They can't do it from Capitol Hill offices, okay? Which is why there are call centers set up just across the street from the Capitol building, call centers, cube cities, okay? For yeah. members of Congress to sit in, to read from a script, talking on a set of headphones, to fat cats to try and talk them out of the maximum that they can contribute in a campaign, okay? And I, and I, I, I studied this, and I went, these people cannot, I've done the Cube City thing, it's not fun. Yeah. Like, why would these guys, who know they're going to get reelected, consent to spending half of their work week in Cube City trying to, to do money? And it was after Eric Cantor's defeat that I realized, okay, they are not raising money to defeat the opposing Democrat or the opposing Republican in the general election. They want a war chest to beat off any attempt by someone of their own party in the primary. Okay? It's the primary where they're vulnerable. Okay? Now, do you take Eric Cantor's defeat, okay? One of the most powerful people in Congress with an unlimited amount of money to spend in his election in a district where he was incredibly popular and he loses. Yeah. Now, let's say you go ahead and nationalize that, okay? So in a blue district, you run an honest Democrat mm -hmm. against the incumbent, okay? In a Republican district... The Tea Party, or their equivalent, selects somebody to run against the sold-out Republican. Mm -hmm. But this happens after the Democrats and the Republican voters have gotten together and agreed on what corruption is and what ending it means in legislative terms. Yeah. Okay? So everybody who's running against corruption is actually talking about, they're singing from the same play sheet in terms of what they want to do, okay? So you wind up, and now you go ahead and you nationalize House elections, which are usually localized district by district, but you nationalize the, the House elections on the basis of reformists who will get big money out of politic, politics running against the incumbents who refuse to sign on to doing it, okay? Now, I'm talking about a lot of money, and I'm talking about organization. Done. This isn't me. Yeah. This is a movement done by people who are way above me in the in the political food chain, but they aren't part of either the Democratic or Republican parties. After I flight, I met them. I know who these people are. They're on my Rolodex. Okay, so I'm not claiming that I deserve a seat at the table. 
But I'm saying the people who could organize this, the people who have on their Rolodexes millionaires who value democracy, they're yeah. there. Okay. So you nationalize and you establish a majority that's not a Democratic majority or a Republican majority. You establish a reformist majority. Okay. Now we have succeeded, voters have succeeded at getting a force in government with the power to pass the laws, okay, that would build that wall of separation between big money and our government. Yeah. Okay. And it could be made a permanent wall. This is something I address in my book also. Because corruption is actually very simple. It is either campaign finance reform in the amount of money that people can give and um, who can give it. Okay. Corporations and reversing citizens in the United would be part of this. Yeah. Okay. That's campaign finance reform. So that's the phase I call before, before they get elected, when they're running for office or when they're running for election again. During, okay, that is insider trading. 20% of Congress on average, in an average year, doubles their net worth. Yeah. Not the same 20%, okay? Although there are some people who are always on the list there are other people who are never on the list, okay? But people in Congress are insider trading, and I think you talked about it earlier, okay? Yeah. People are working full-time in Congress to use the levers of government to get inside information from which they can make themselves rich. Yeah. The solution is easy, and it's a no-brainer. It's called a blind trust. Yeah. Every member of Congress would be required to put their portfolio into a blind trust, which would be required to have changes in it. So the guy may know that when he went into office, he was heavily invested in oil stocks. Okay, yeah. 90 days after he's in Congress, he doesn't know if that's still true and he can't find out. Yeah. Okay, so nobody who votes will know if they are voting their financial part portfolio when an issue comes up. And the blind trust is, it's already established. The formula for it is there. What needs to be is if the Congress critter or the person who's running a blind trust breaks the rules, they go to jail for a long time. This is a violation of the public trust, not a misdemeanor. Okay. Yeah. The third phase is after. Okay. I covered before, during, after is when these people really cash in. Over oh, half of the members of Congress who leave Congress wind up working as lobbyists, either directly as registered lobbyists on K Street, or they're working for the machine from Wall Street or working for special interest groups who are doing the, the same thing. Okay. But when you look at those categories, okay, either on K Street or off K Street, negotiating with K Street, okay, mm -hmm. boom. Okay, everybody who leaves Congress for a decade after they leaves Congress is going to have their financial dealings under a microscope. Yeah. It is not a matter of whether or not a transaction is legal. It would be whether or not it has the appearance of impropriety. Yes. Okay. 
which means if you're an ex-congressman and you're asked to give a speech for a special interest group, that's fine. If they want to pay you $2 million, it's not. Yeah. Okay? You can earn for a speech or an appearance what your per diem would have been as a member of Congress plus your direct expenses. Okay? Mm -hmm. You want to go to a convention? That's fine. You want to give a speech for or against anything? Nobody's limiting that. Okay? If it looks like you're getting paid back for your vote, if it looks like you might have anticipated rewards for your vote, okay? No, it's not. After you leave office, you will not be allowed anything that might look like a reward for your support. I'm not telling somebody in Congress they can't support the oil companies. They can, but they yeah. can't get rewarded afterwards. Right. Okay. There is a pin. So if you say, well, if I'm a lawyer, does that mean I can't work for the oil companies? No. You're a lawyer. You want to get, okay. But there is on everything in business, okay, there is an average rate of return. Okay. I mean, there's a, um, they call them comps. Same thing as comps on a house. Okay. There are comps in labor. Labor disputes are settled by judges who look at the comps. That is what's compared, okay? So yeah. if you write a 20-page contract for an oil company that has no complexity, okay, it's not worth $5 million by any stretch of the imagination. And it can be proved as far as what the going rate for that type of legal work is, okay? Everybody who's in, who works with a lawyer works with, for this type of work, what's the going rate? And they may pay a premium, but you can't pay a premium to somebody because they were a member of Congress. That is right. not a standard that entitles you or them to premium prices because it has the smell of impropriety. Now, we're only talking about watching a few hundred, go big, 2,000 people. Yeah. We're talking about watching their money. We're talking about them knowing that they're required to disclose everything. And the failure to disclose is a ticket to jail. All right. These are the only three ways that legalized graft happens. There is not a fourth method. Okay. The answers are simple. Okay. And you can nail it down. And if you did, the crooks would leave Washington. I mean, that's it. They, they don't want to go to yeah. jail. They're not going to take the risk of going to jail. You close the door yeah. on getting rich. They'll say, that's the only reason I came. And they'll leave. Right? And they'll be replaced in the next election by people who know they can't get rich. All right? This changes everything. And doesn't guarantee that the replacements are going to be smart. It just guarantees right. they're working for us. Okay? Yes. It doesn't change the mix of conservative districts to liberal districts. Okay. Right. But if these people work together to get big money out of politics, they know their counterpart on the other side of the aisle is as honest as they are. Yes. Okay. The vitriol evaporates. 
Okay. And then we can start talking policy for a change. Yeah. All right. So what I'm saying is you make one change. Big money out of politics. Everything changes. Everything becomes possible. That's why I wrote the book. Well, uh, tell me about the book. Where can people get it? <laughs> okay. Uh, it's available on Amazon. The, the title is Flightly. Here we go. Let me do something really commercial. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a commercial person. I'm the worst salesman, even for my own. Yeah. <laughs> but the book is Flight Plan. And you go by the author's. You can also search by the author's name. Uh, I also have a website with a really catchy name, DougHughesAuthor.com. Uh, that's the only place you can get an autographed copy of the book. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if. If you don't, if you select the regular option instead of the autograph cop option, you're still going to get an autograph copy. Okay. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'm not in it to make a million bucks. Right. Okay. I'm, I'm working my bucket list. The book was one item on the bucket list. Okay. The very top of my bucket list is to see things change before I die. I'm not going to live yeah. long enough for us to solve climate change. I'm not going to live right. long enough to, to see world peace. Okay. But we get big money out of politics. I'm going to see before I die that we're trending that direction. Yeah. Okay. If we get big money out of politics, some of the money that's going to the Pentagon, that's ultimately going into private pockets, okay, of the companies who build these toys. Okay, for billions of dollars. Yeah. Some of that money is going to go over to the State Department. And we're going to say, before we go to war, we're going to try and figure out if there's a way that we can solve this problem for less than it would cost us to go to war. Okay. And we'll start working with democracies and say, look, it's always cheaper for us to solve these problems without violence. So how do we solve a refugee problem? this here. Okay. Yeah. How do we solve a drought problem here that's causing starvation? How do we deal with ultra militants? Okay. Who are taking over and, and, and installing their own thug rule. Okay. Yeah. In this country, even if it's not a country with oil, we ought to take interest. Okay. Right. <laughs> in, in the fact that we, that, okay. So yeah, we're going to wind up spending money for world peace. I'm all for it. Okay. And we are again, an example for the world in how people can live and have self rule and, and live with respect. Okay. Then our status in the league of nations changes completely. Right? One thing, makes everything else possible. Well, it sounds like you've uh, really crafted a, a great piece of science fiction here. Uh, you know, money getting out of politics and <laughs> things changing. Uh, no, the, the I mean, power, all of that sounds... <laughs> the, power is, the, the power is there and it's not magical. I believe you. I, I because well, I, I talk about I talk about all the primary, kidding aside. No, no. I, all the kidding primary aside, strategy. I, the primary strategy is based on the fact that most people don't vote. 
Yes. Okay. The primary is that's how they kneel Eric Cantor. Okay. The people yes. who liked him didn't vote because they weren't paying attention. Okay. The Tea right. Party cared. I'm not a Tea Party person, but the Tea Party mm-hmm. cared and they organized and they put the energy into it and they turned out to vote. And Eric Cantor was on the street. Okay. We have the power. Yeah. Yeah. I, and neither party wants us to know this. The incumbents don't Agreed. want us to know it. You'll never right. read about it in the media. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it's, and it's, I remember talking to three major leaders from, um, his name escapes me, a major um, action group in Washington, D.C. And I asked them, I said, 85% of the House districts are a gimme. Okay, for the party that has a majority. So they said, yeah, that's obvious. I said, and the incumbent has a 90% chance of getting reelected. And they said, yeah, that's that's also commonly known. I said, so why are they doing fundraising? Yes, why not? They know they're going to get reelected. Why are they doing fundraising? Yeah. Okay, it's because of the, it, it's the primary election they're defending against. Okay. Yeah. And people who were who were in this don't know it. I mean, these are people who live, breathe, work it, it politics of their career, and they haven't put that together yet. We need some very serious reforms in all of the ways that uh the system is being bought and paid for. Yeah against our interests. Um, I could talk to you about this all day. Uh, it has been a real honor uh, to speak to you and to hear all of this. Uh, and thanks for talking to me today, Doug. Well, I, when I read the description of your blog, I knew we had to talk uh, because <laughs> it wouldn't have happened except for my son's suicide. Okay. Um, yeah. Was it worth it? No. Uh, if no. I had it to do over, would I let him commit suicide so that I could be here talking to you? Sorry. No. No. But it's done. Okay. And something good came out of it. And if if that's what it is, then that's what it is. Okay. Something yeah. good did come out of it. Uh I turned a huge negative, a huge pain that I had into trying to save this country. Yeah. And John would approve of it. Um, If anything good finally does happen, it will be because karma, God, Yahweh, whatever you want to call the deity, would like us to rule ourselves with justice. Yeah. God doesn't care about democracy or economic systems. But if there is a God, God believes in justice. And this is how we get there. Wasn't that phenomenal? Honestly, 
I really cannot thank him enough for sharing his perspective and his time and his incredible, incredible story that has peaks and valleys and heartbreak and intrigue and humor and everything. Uh, If you want to get some more Doug in your life, and again, I know you do, go to DougHughesAuthor.com and you can find links to all of his socials and everything. As for me... Please come and visit me Thursdays at 8 a.m. Pacific and again at 3 p.m. Pacific for the the Thursday chat. It's like group therapy without a therapist. It's every Thursday. Go to coffeeoversuicide.com slash talk. And until then, don't kill yourselves out there.